0: Welcome to the Global Energy and Environmental Law Podcast. Today is September 8th, 2015. In this podcast, I have the honor and pleasure of interviewing three experts on how corporate fiduciary trust and securities law is becoming the driver of action against climate change by institutional investors. Julian Poulter is the founder and chief executive officer of the Asset Owners Disclosure Project, Julian is an experienced business executive with primary experience in strategy and change consulting combined with several CEO and director roles. He has managed companies and projects in many diverse industries including investment, finance, manufacturing, energy, oil and gas, distribution, retail, telecoms, IT, tourism, transportation, commercial property and media. He's a stakeholder council member of the Global Reporting Initiative and chair of the GRI Investor Working Group. Sarah Barker is a special counsel in the corporate group in Minter Ellison's Melbourne office. She has more than 15 years experience in corporate law with particular expertise in corporate governance, misleading and deceptive conduct, competition, antitrust and consumer protection. Jay Youngdahl is a partner in the Houston-based law firm Youngdahl & City, PC and is senior fellow with the Hauser Institute's Initiative for Responsible Investment at Harvard University. For over 30 years, he has served as fund counsel to a number of employee benefit funds and is retained to provide expert legal opinions to public and private funds. My name is Mayanna Dellinger. I'm an associate professor of law with the University of South Dakota School of Law. I research and write on issues of environmental law and their intersection with business law. Welcome, everyone.
1: Thank, Thank you, Maya.
0: So, Mr. Poulter, could you please describe what the Asset Owners Disclosure Project is all about?
2: Well, the Asset Owners Disclosure Project uh, ranks and rates the very largest funds in the world according to their management of climate risk. Great. Right. So we set out some years ago to try and understand what the world's largest funds were doing in the management of climate risk. There was no information about what the large investors were doing. So we did a a short study. Uh, It didn't take us very long to figure out that the real power was, wasn't really at the, at the company level. It was further up the uh, investment food chain. uh, even beyond the, the initial shareholders, the fund managers and right up to what we call the asset owners who are uh, the pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, insurance companies, uh, foundations and endowments. And the most, the largest of those is the pension fund industry, it's around $40 trillion. And so each year uh, we send out a, an information request to the largest thousand uh, asset owners and we rank the largest 500 out of that 1,000 um, based on a whole set of criteria about their management of material financial risks. So we're not trying to make any moral or ethical judgment on them as to how they invest. This is merely an analysis of how they do what they're supposed to be doing, which is to balance uh, financial risk and, and return. Uh, we do this globally, so um, the, the, the funds are in every seri- every single jurisdiction across all the asset owner types, uh, but out of the 1,000 that we survey, uh, nearly 800 are, are pension funds. Um, and we each year we produce an index as a result of that analysis showing who the leaders and, and laggards are. Uh, and it's fair to say I think we've been pretty successful in making sure the laggards don't um, remain laggards for very long because uh, uh, and inspiring some, some leadership, ambition at least.
0: So you uh, are talking a lot in your materials about climate risk uh, just sort of as a threshold matter here in the reti- uh, retirement investment context. Could you elaborate for the readers what you mean by climate risk in this context?
2: So we don't tend to focus too much on the physical impacts of climate change because – um, they are a little bit more long-term, even though there's strong evidence to suggest that some of them are already in train in terms of increased uh, um, extreme weather events and, and drought and water patterns and so forth. Without doubt, the biggest risk for, long- for investors are even shorter term than that. And they are policy innovation risks and supply side and e- and, and, and economic risks. Uh, and i give you a good example. Whereas uh, a lot of big funds in the US uh, tend to think that there's little chance of uh, Congress signing off a carbon price at any time in the near future. Uh, of course, there's a lot of other risks which are outside of the control of Congress. The pace of innovation, uh, China's new five-year plans, the integration of, of other types of carbon regimes around the world itself is driving capital into cleaner areas, and these represent real financial risks for uh, for investors, particularly in the US. Um, and so, you know, we lo- we lo- we like to look at the the risks which we think are more relevant to the investors, and some of those are perhaps not short term in the way that markets were perceived. You now, they're not they're not going to happen next week uh, or next month, but some of them can certainly impact investors within one to one to three years.
0: Interesting. And so it seems that change might be uh, underway here, but perhaps it's a little bit sluggish. Um, At least just a couple of years ago, an article in 2013 in the Scientific American uh, stated that only 27 of no less than 258 investment funds responding to a set of questions uh, posed by your project of those only 27 Uh, are addressing climate risk at a responsible level and that 80% were either rated D or X. So first, could you talk a little bit about your rating system and could you tell us uh, a couple of years later, are those figures still the same? No, I mean, we've published
2: a couple of um, uh, uh, more up-to-date indices since then. But um, look, it's fair to say the leadership group has expanded. That is one of the positive outcomes of our work. Uh, We have driven a lot of the big funds to become better at managing climate risk. Uh, And essentially, that means reducing their carbon exposure and investing more in in, in clean assets. Um, And so, whilst the numbers are still relatively small, uh, we still have uh, around 85% of, um, of the asset owners are rated DNX. Uh, actually, the leadership group has been far more ambitious uh, and aggressive in, in what it's done. And it, it's moving further ahead of the, uh, of the laggards.
0: So in this respect, who are uh, what you would call the laggards and who do you think are the leaders? Well, I mean, for a long list, of course, you'd have to go
2: to our, uh, our website. Uh, there are too many to, to list. I mean, I think it was 232 out of the recent uh, survey, Rated X, and that means that we can find nothing at all about how they're managing climate risk uh, any differently to any other risk. Uh, and that's a real problem uh, because essentially what we what we need to guard against here, particularly in light of the subprime crisis, is that these so, so-called long-term investors rely on short-term markets to manage long-term risks. Uh, and we simply know that a lot of the processes around the short-term markets aren't capable of assessing uh, these kind of risks at the leadership end well, you've got leaders in a whole variety of jurisdictions certainly in the US people like Calpers, Calstras, New York Common are, are doing some really good work um, in Australia there's uh, which has got the most regulated pension system in the world there's quite a few leaders uh, and there's there's one or two smattered around Europe but but still, these 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 leaders are um, the exception rather than the norm, unfortunately.
0: So interesting. So, uh, when you did your study, have you been able to discern any broader trends? So it seems like you just said that uh, that these leaders and laggards are scattered uh, throughout the world in in different clusters. Uh, but they are just that, or have you, like I said, been able to see any more regional trends in who's better than others?
2: Not so much regional. You tend to get a, in Australia, they tend to be more advanced because it has a much more regulated system. There's a higher degree of union influenced funds in Australia than, than perhaps there is elsewhere. And Europe's pension funds got to grips with the issue perhaps a little bit earlier because of the European carbon pricing system. Uh, that said, a lot of the leaders have started to emerge in, in the US. And that's, you know, we, you could argue with a, a pretty difficult political regime to to work against when it comes to climate change and yet they have made some really solid strides forward and one of the things that i think identifies leaders is that they have abandoned things like indexation this reliance on short-term markets as a way to manage this risk and they've they've gone off market to try and you know invent look for opportunities in renewable energy uh, and to reduce their exposure to things like fossil fuel companies
0: Good. So, in your opinion, what should investment firms or funds do to uh, more properly protect their assets against climate risks? We don't think it's very
2: difficult to reduce carbon exposure because it's in so many different asset classes and sectors. Uh, there, according to our analysis, around about fifty-five percent of a portfolio is exposed to carbon risk in in some way or another. So, there are plenty of opportunities. We don't believe in divestment, we think it's a naive investment strategy, um, but that said, there are certainly some divestment opportunities to help reduce that risk. But perhaps more importantly, the one thing that nobody really knows is the, what the low carbon acceleration period will look like. And we don't know if it's in one, three, five, ten, 10, even 15 years, but we think it's inevitable. And when that happens, We think that investors will need, uh, if you like, what we call a hedge, a low-carbon hedge. And by over-investing now into renewable energy and other clean assets, uh, those investments will increase in value at a time when all of the other higher-carbon ones decrease very quickly. Uh, And we saw during the subprime crisis what happens when a market is full of sellers. And we think that uh, asset owners need to guard against that, uh, that that eventuality immediately.
0: And what may happen if they don't? Do you see that there might be some legal liability that may ensue from uh, the potential lack of such action in this context?
2: Yeah, a- absolutely. Um, you've seen only, only this week, indeed, in Australia, a potential, uh, potential legal action against trustees of a, of a coal pension fund. We ourselves are helping to support an initiative looking at these responsibilities in the UK. Um, this isn't uh, this isn't a difficult risk to read. No trustee can uh, can claim that they've not heard of climate risk before. Uh, there's been so much activity around climate risk, and so if for whatever reason, whether it be a reaction to extreme weather, uh politicians getting their act together, uh, innovation from Tesla or whatever, uh, if there is a rapid devaluation in, fo- in fossil fuel companies or other high carbon companies that hurt these asset owners, then of course they're going to be exposed and they can hardly say that nobody uh, gave them any warning.
0: That is right. Miss um, Barker, uh, perhaps you could provide us with a little bit of the uh, Australian uh, perspective on these issues because I think some of the leaders might find it interesting that Australia I believe as a country is is uh, sort of very much against climate change regulation on par with what's going on in the United States but yet we heard that there's some interesting Australian initiatives here. What do you think about all this?
1: Yes well unfortunately we're the only developed nation that has repealed its um, carbon emission pricing scheme. I think the first issue uh, that underlies the potential legal liability in this area is that trustee directors need to stop thinking about climate change as an ethical or environmental risk. I think historically it's been an issue that has been very easy to push to one side on the basis that uh, it's an ethical issue that necessarily involves uh, compromising uh, returns to beneficiaries, which of of, of course is is uh, the main duty of of, of uh, trustees, uh, and therefore it's you know all very nice, but but something that that um, really is secondary to to the main game of, of of ensuring that that returns are maximized. Right. I think uh, it comes comes down firstly to. Their fiduciary duties. And this is a concept that's, that's not only a, a product of Australian law, but uh, across all common law jurisdictions where trustees are fiduciaries of, of their beneficiaries. And what that means is that they have to prioritise the interests of beneficiaries and yes, their financial interests. But in doing so, they also have to exercise due care and diligence. And increasingly, we're seeing that because climate change is becoming squarely a material financial risk for funds, and that's not us as lawyers saying that, you should never take financial advice from your lawyers, Mm -hmm. but organisations like the World Economic Forum, HSBC, Mercer, Uh, the Bank of England, uh, the World Bank are all saying there are material financial risks arising from climate change and whether they manifest in the physical risks of climate change or in the risk of uh, regulatory and policy changes um, from governments imposing um, clean energy standards or prices on carbon or whether they're market-driven insofar as uh, renewable energies uh, are becoming cost-competitive with uh, fossil fuel uh, energy sources, w- whatever the the, the uh, 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 drivers of the risk may be, they are financial risks that are associated with climate change. And because the standards of diligence expected of trustees are so high, they're expected around the world to be professional managers of other people's money... Um, it's, it's now at the stage, uh, we believe, that if they're not proact- proactively uh, managing the financial risk aspects associated with climate change, then they're at risk of breaching their duty of due care and diligence to their fund, to their beneficiaries.
0: And that, of course, could lead to, uh, to lawsuits based on that in, in Australia, for sure. Uh, what about in the United States mr. youngdahl is uh, with us today too what do you think the uh, position in in the American market is on these issues
3: well thank you the uh, the American market is uh, somewhat complicated because we have a, a vast number of uh, employee benefit funds pension funds health funds and they some are company specific some are very large like the funds that uh, Julian I mentioned the uh, public employee systems in California, and some are relatively small for uh, construction unions uh, throughout the United States. But the legal duty that uh, attaches to trustees is the same, and that is this fiduciary duty that uh, Sarah mentioned. Fiduciary duty is a very simple concept. It's a historical concept. that uh, just means that the trustees have to give their undivided attention to do the best for their beneficiaries and for the financial position that the beneficiaries are in and the, and the funds that they hope to, or the monies that they hope to receive from these funds. As part of that, you have to look at the risk to your um, investments, fees on your investments, a number of things. And as Julian and Sarah pointed out, one of the biggest areas of uncertainty today is risk in the, the climate change, climate sector. So from a trustee standpoint, uh, if one does not uh, exercise properly their fiduciary duty, they can get sued. And uh, trustees often get sued uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, But part of that duty is to constantly being taken to take a look at your portfolio. And in this May, uh, the United States Supreme Court issued a a decision in a case involving the Edison company uh, brought by a, a man named Tibble. In which it affirmed that trustees have a duty to constantly be monitoring their portfolios. So when something like climate risk comes up, which was not large on the agenda uh, some years ago, but is today, uh, trustees have to look at that. Uh, I gave a presentation probably uh, seven or eight years ago, in which a trustee came up afterwards and said, "Well." Uh, and I talked about climate risk, and he said, "Well, I don't believe in all that tree hugging stuff." Uh, now the position is that uh, whether one uh, believes in tree hugging stuff or not, uh, climate risk is a, a major risk to the portfolios of pension funds and benefit funds, and trustees have to have to pay attention to that. In the U.S. as well, we've started to see litigation uh, involving climate change. Uh, it's being brought in. Avenues that are already well established—that is, the question of the breach of trustees uh, to their beneficiaries—and interestingly enough, in the last couple of months, uh, two cases have been filed in federal court in the St. Louis area against trustees for coal of coal companies, claiming that those coal companies, by investing in their own stock,
1: basically
3: were violating their fiduciary duty to their uh, employees and retirees, because it's clear that coal generally has been a very bad investment. And in fact, several large American coal companies have declared for bankruptcy already. So it goes back to the point that Julian is making, even in the United States, even if there are no governmental rules about coal production or coal burning, and there are some, but they're certainly certain not adequate, the financial markets are certainly taking a taking a look at this they're concerned about climate change they're concerned about those investments which are based on old methods of uh, the use of carbon and they're basically punishing those stocks and so the lawsuit went against uh made a claim against the trustees trustees who i might add have personal liability claiming that they had not paid attention enough attention to this risk
0: great and what about those individual investors that may be interested in tree hugging aspects, as you called it? Or if not that, then it is just their, you know, their individual funds. What role can and should they play in this? Can they ask uh, the companies for more information? Or what do you recommend that in this individual on the ground investors do here? Yeah. Well, th-
3: there's several ways to consider that. And Julian and, and uh, Sarah may want to say something as well, but. Uh, In the United States, investors tend to invest in mutual funds. And uh, up until recently, mutual funds have really lagged in this area. Uh, Now, however, it is possible to invest in mutual funds that pay a lot of attention to this issue. Uh, But it's still the case that some of the larger uh, index funds and the big uh, investment houses like Vanguard or Fidelity are not engaging uh, really as well as they should. And there's a movement afoot uh, to try to push those companies, those mutual fund companies, forward. Uh, there's also uh, engagements that go on with some of the uh, companies on climate, and it's difficult for an individual to have an effect, but the funds are very active, and certainly an individual can attempt to become part of one of those movements. And uh, maybe Julian or, or Sarah would like to speak a little more about how that engagement process works.
0: Yes. What do you think?
2: Yeah, happy to. Um, I mean, one of the interesting developments is you know what happens when investors don't think that companies are managing these risks adequately. Well, of course, there's a lot of behind the scenes discussion goes on between investors and companies all the time. Uh, but essentially, what happens also uh, if there's a, a an ongoing disagreement is that somebody raises resolutions uh, at the annual general meetings and we've seen in the us in recent years an increasing number of these resolutions and we've seen some of them gain uh, more and more support initially uh, these resolutions tend to be about disclosure but increasingly you're seeing them more about action rather than just disclosure uh, and indeed uh, the the chevron uh, agm last year saw the first ever opportunity for investors to demand that a that a large oil and gas company uh, cease all further exploration uh, and return the capital to its shareholders and, and whilst it was he- predictably heavily defeated, uh, it certainly created a lively debate and has all you know we're we're here Sarah and I at an investment conference in in London uh, and certainly it's a live discussion about how the investment community can best transition this industry. Uh, without using dis- methods of destructive capitalism. We know that, of course, we could wait for uh, the low-carbon acceleration to occur, whether it's um, uncomfortable or not. But the sheer scale of carbon risk uh, in the economy means that we investors need to try wow. and create more of a smooth transition in their portfolios. We can't afford to have a whole bunch of coal and oil and gas companies uh destroy communities uh and and leave people out on the street and pick up the pieces and try and recreate uh a different economy we've got to be a bit smarter about that transition and so you know that's where this the engagement with these companies is is starting to head
0: so you promote both uh bottom up and top down uh action sort of an all hands on deck solution in this respect
2: yeah i think uh, there is opportunities for investors to reduce their level of investment in some of these high carbon companies. Uh, but at the same time, they're, they're, they're so big, these companies that they're going to remain invested in them to some degree. And so they need to help some of those transitions, um, to, you know, from a, from a high carbon to a low carbon company. And we, we've seen this in Germany when it comes to E.ON, who's split its high and low carbon businesses. And we've st- seen Statoil, one of the world's biggest oil companies, create a renewable energy division. So, it's happening uh, the discussions are alive are, are and uh, uh you know investors should should watch out because if they if they don't join that engagement party they'll be left behind
0: right miss barker I, yes go ahead i think it's
1: interesting there to contrast um the experience at the chevron AGM to what has happened in Europe. Shareholders in Shell, in BP and Statoil um, also uh, filed um, resolutions seeking um, the agreement of the company to stress test its forward or their forward investment plans over a 35-year period against the different uh, alternative climate futures promulgated by the International Energy Agency and to disclose the results of that stress testing in their annual reports. Now, those resolutions were supported by the boards of each of those uh, oil and gas companies and were indeed passed at the AGMs uh, with a majority of over 98%. So you can actually see now there's a, there's a big divide opening up between those companies who are carbon exposed, who are prepared to uh, proactively deal with the risk. Um, at, at least, in so far as a recognition that they have to take account of the risk and, and, and disclose it to their shareholders as something that is materially financial, and those who aren't. Um, and from a from a legal perspective, we've actually had a case in Australia recently where where a similar uh, resolution that was put up at the um, AGM of one of our banks, the Commonwealth Bank. Um, was, re- the, the board of directors refused to put that, uh, resolution to shareholders, a resolution, um, asking that the bank disclose the, uh, carbon intensity of its loan portfolio. Directors refused to do so. And the shareholders who put that resolution up actually took the bank to court, seeking, um, judgment along the lines that it was impermissible for the board of directors to refuse to, to put that resolution to the AGM. Now, about three weeks ago, the Federal Court in Australia found that the Board of Directors was in fact within their rights to refuse to put the resolution up, but it is uh, going on appeal to the full Federal Court in Australia. So it certainly is a live issue, certainly amongst investors, in terms of the the extent of their rights to ascertain, well, what is the risk exposure within our portfolio companies? And that's information that often is quite opaque. And that they they really need to actively engage with their portfolio companies in order to get the information that they need to make an educated decision about the risk and return profile of a particular holding.
3: Um, when we're talking about the individual investors, um, you know, Julian talked about the importance of active management, uh, but many investors, uh, especially in the United States, tend to want to invest in index funds. And that is that they want the lowest fees possible. Um, we're starting to see in the U.S. index funds that have as a component of them a view on climate risk that we're advocating here. And if you look at the returns over one, three, five, 10 ten-year period, frankly, they've been better than the, those funds who did not look at their climate risk perspective. So even for individual investors who say, "Well, that's," It's all fine and good, but I can't really influence things because, and and I want as fees possible, an alternative that allow individual investors to be able to do that. Or for people who, let's say, are investing for their grandchildren and want to be sure the investments that they make for them aren't world-destroying type of investments, uh, those opportunities are are quickly coming.
0: Right, right. So what you're saying is that investors, if they do take a strong interest in this, you recommend that they don't look so much at the fees for the uh, for the various index funds, but that they look more at what kind of funds they could better choose that do take these things into account. Well,
3: I personally look at fees first, let me just say. And, and there's a little bit of a difference between the three of us possibly on that. But what I'm saying is that I think you can get both of those things now. And so, for example, uh, I'm a trustee on a large fund. Uh, large in the United States, although maybe not large by some world standards. We have $650 million. Uh, We tend to index our investments uh, because we are concerned about fees. But we've uh, recently approached our managers and said in the future, uh, we're only going to purchase index funds that pay attention to carbon risk. And we found these managers uh, quite happy uh, at a very, very
2: low uh, fee right great i might add there when it comes to the low index funds of course um by definition as soon as uh as soon as somebody provides a product which is not representative of the overall makeup of the stock market it isn't an index fund and in, in the truest sense but what you're finding despite the fact that there are a multitude of investment issues for uh, for people and indeed for asset owners to look at is that climate risk is coming to the very fore and attention is being paid to these sort of index tilted funds uh, which in all other respects look like benchmark funds but in fact have, have got the single issue of carbon and climate change risk uh, reduced within them so they can retain their relatively low fee positions but offer greatly reduced exposure to carbon
0: great So things are happening, certainly, from uh, all angles, it sounds like. Though earlier you mentioned, I think, uh, Julian, that you do not believe in your organization in divestments. I know in this country, in the United States, there's a lot of debate about whether academic institutions should divest from uh, certain funds. Uh, Stanford, uh, for instance, has done so, but Harvard has said that it will not. Why do you not believe in uh, divestments?
2: um well look, by the way stanford hasn't done so oh they have not okay if you if you um but we, we won't let um we won't let reality get in, <laughs> get in the way of a good story we we in the ngo community know how to market uh, victories and uh, <laughs> the the reality is is that a lot of the funds who have committed to divestment are, are still working out how they're going to do it okay but let's try and look at the the problem we're trying to solve which is climate change uh the reality is is that even if we shut down the the entire western oil business that climate change would still be an issue and there would still be enough reserves in the national oil companies in the middle east to take us to well above 4 degrees so uh we need to understand the impact of di- of divestment uh, and for that reason alone we we don't we don't think that it's something that in isolation should be supported however we don't think that really the divestment movement is talking about investment in, in, uh, in a complex sense. They're trying to build a political movement, and I think they've done a great job in doing so. Uh, but, of course, carbon is a risk that is in many, many more sectors than just the fossil fuel mining sector. It's in energy, transportation, agriculture, heavy manufacturing, and so forth. Uh, there isn't a single industry hardly that is untouched by carbon risk. So it doesn't make any sense to just shut down a whole bunch of oil companies um, and energy companies go on burning because they get their supply from unlisted companies, for example. The real issue here is what is the risk to our economy and indeed the portfolios of these asset owners. Uh, and we think the best way for them to manage this risk is to reduce their exposure, not just in fossil fuel companies, but across the board. and we think they can do that by a few percent very, very quickly, and to redirect that investment into cleaner assets. Even if we took the average level of clean assets, which is about 2% of a portfolio, and took that to 5%, we would have released enough capital into the low-carbon economy to have solved nearly half of the climate change problem. So it's not like this isn't doable. It's doable, and the money's there to solve it. Uh, and indeed, asset owners are, are in charge of their own destiny on this one. Uh, so they just—they need to—they uh, they need to bite the bullet uh, and start making the changes.
0: What are your plans for the future? It sounds like uh, this is uh, just all starting up and getting a lot of attention right now. What plans do you have for the immediate and long future?
3: Well, the three of us are here at a conference of. Uh, called the Principles of Responsible Investment. And we are meeting with investors from all around the world and service providers, asset managers, consultants uh, who collectively uh, uh, oversee or help to manage trillions and trillions of dollars of assets. We're working through those issues about how investors can best protect their beneficiaries and help make the move to a uh, a safer and, and cleaner way uh, to deal with energy in the attendant industries. And like Julian said, it's a complicated process. It's political. Uh, and I would agree that the divestment movement is really part of the political movement. It is the question of how we get resources into new forms of energy. And I think the we're making tremendous progress other than that, but but much more progress has to be made. Uh, there are questions about uh, how this is actually done and legal questions that Sarah and I work on. Sarah and I are meeting with lawyers from around the world at the end of the conference to discuss uh, certain strategies, both to uh, protect uh, trustees and to push and trustees on, on some of these issues. So I think that and we're, we're doing this also in connection with, there's a meeting later in the year, I think, in uh, Paris that's going to talk about Uh, some of these issues. So the movement is picking up speed. And I want to second one of the things that uh, Julian said, and that is that when things like this move, they move very, very quickly. So what happens often is the pressure builds up, the pressure builds up, and then boom, uh, things change. And we may be in that kind of situation on how investors see uh, climate change and see climate risk. And therefore, we're trying to put together the kind of structures and thoughts and and potential regulation and laws that can help move things in, in, in a better direction for all the global citizens.
0: So I've heard you uh, all say that you think uh, some of this at least is political, uh, sort of in a way to get people on the ground to uh, instigate change. I've also noticed that Ms. Barker once said that uh, she thinks that the Oslo principles that we uh, spoke about in a previous podcast uh, here in this series and other similar legal and fiduciary developments actually will soon become viewed by many courts as uncontroversial. Uh, Do you think uh, this is still the case, Ms. Barker, or why do you think this will be uncontroversial when, at least in the United States, this does seem to be somewhat uh, controversial from a political point of view? Uh,
1: What the Oslo principles at their very essence stand for is that climate change is an issue that is uh, governable and governed, under the current legal structures, the current statutes, the, the current uh, judge-made laws that we have in place today. And it doesn't require any huge shift in the legal framework in order for uh, issues associated with climate change and climate change risk to be litigated. And I think increasingly as uh, as a society, we're shifting the way that we perceive climate change rather than as a you know lefty greeny ethical issue to the recognition that it has material financial implications across the board then it is very easy to see how existing frameworks of law securities laws corporations laws tort law are capable of regulating conduct in relation to climate change, it's interesting. There was a, there was a case, uh, in the Netherlands a couple of weeks ago, a, a case in, in tort, essentially, where a group headed by Urgenda, uh, sued the Dutch government, essentially alleging that it had breached its duty of care to its citizens by not, uh, putting a regulatory policies in, in place to limit emissions. It was consistent with limiting climate change to two degrees above pre-industrial levels. And in reaching a decision in favour of agenda, the court actually looked to the Oslo principles and was influenced by the Oslo principles in recognising that that current legal frameworks are, are, are eminently capable of regulating issues associated with climate change and that really that the fact that issues are driven by climate change and climate change risk is irrelevant. It, it's just like any other financial, regulatory, economic risk that is faced by business around the world.
0: So, in a way, old wine on new bottles, but with positive change underway. <laughs> oh, I like that expression.
2: <laughs> I mean, all of these, all of these, tend to boil down to a series of human issues. And yeah, the, the reality is, is that as human beings, mostly we're short-term, and so. Uh, this is at the crux of the issue. We, nobody doubts that solving climate change is going to be a long-term beneficial to fu- uh, benefit to future generations uh, and will provide a more stable economy. But nobody wants the short-term pain of having to transition existing industries. And politicians, of course, uh, who are notoriously short-term, have sidestepped this issue uh, because of vested interests for a long time. And I think investors are actually in their thinking one step ahead now uh, and realize that action has to be taken. It, it used to be the case at conferences like this in London where the investors would, would sit down and say, well, we're just waiting for governments to act. And now I think the, the tone of the investment community has changed significantly. They know that governments are unlikely to take the difficult decisions uh but they know that they're left with risks and they can't afford to let those risks go on and on so they need to educate their own beneficiaries they need to uh, engage much harder with politicians uh and and indeed their their, their own members and retail investors to uh, even if there is a short term sacrifice in return uh, the pain has to be communicated uh, because the alternative is much worse and so this becomes a uh, a human intransigence issue and a communication issue more than it is about the technical merits around investment portfolios. Great. Diane, I'd also say, as to the
3: Oslo principles in the United States, of course, the United States' uh, legal system, as you know, is notorious for claiming that we don't really pay attention to yes. <laughs> laws or mm-hmm. decisions in, in other countries. But there's two pieces of significance from these Oslo principles. One is, They're a global understanding of the facts of the matter. And in any court case in the United States, the trier of fact, whether that's the judge or a jury, has to make a determination about what's the standard of care, what are the facts, and the Oslo principles are another large brick in that edifice of the concerns about climate risk and climate change. The second is we've had a political debate, or we're really in the midst of a political debate in the United States, about Trade agreements, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and some other matters like this. Those are global compacts that will force the United States to be under a, uh, a series of laws or regulations that will bind us. And so even the United States will then have to pay, att- American courts will have to pay very much attention to what some of those rules are. And even, and, and they are global, going to be global rules. So, the old saw about American courts don't look to foreign law is slowly but surely crumbling.
0: Interesting. It sounds like positive change is underway. Ms. Barker, Mr. Poulter, and Mr. Yongdahl, we wish you the best of luck. Thank you very much.
2: Pleasure. Thank you Thank, Maya. You, Thank you, Thank you.
0: Thank you very much for listening to the Global Energy and Environmental Law Podcast. Find us on iTunes, Podbean, and ProfessorDellinger.com. Find the Asset Owner's Disclosure Project at aodproject.net.